Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is the second part of a panel discussion that I held uh, on Queer Stories, a collection of writing from uh, some of Australia's finest LGBTQIA plus writers. Now, the panel features Liz Duck-Chong, Tim Bishop, and the editor of the collection, Maeve Marsden. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I speak with Australian writers and we explore their books, their writing, the literary culture that informs them. And we brought, and I broadcast this from Final Draft. Uh, it's the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, this Great Conversations podcast, it expands that discussion. I get to play you the full interviews and really we get behind the scenes of the book and we explore the way that it connects with the world and the pressing issues that we deal with every day. Thanks, everyone, who has been enjoying the podcast. You've shared it. You've, you've subscribed. You've liked it and given us a rating. If you, if you haven't done that yet, please think about giving us a rating and subscribing so that others can find the podcast. Now, as I said, this is the second part of the Queer Stories panel. And Queer Stories features a diverse collection of, of Australia's LGBTQIA plus writers, and it explores their lives and their experiences. I'm really excited to share this second part where we really get into what storytelling Telling means and identity. Uh, so join me now and the fabulous group of writers exploring storytelling community and the need to listen openly in queer stories. So coming at it as a reader, and I mean, I guess that's yeah. that's, that's really my role here. I'm I'm mm. someone who's read it. Yeah, <laughs> you're all involved in it. Um, I've read it too. <laughs> confession, confession. I don't know if you guys have a particular philosophy on reading short stories or collections. Um, I am a bouncer. Some oh, people, okay. some people swear by um, sort of a linear reading, but I, I bounce. Um, and because I was familiar, because you know, you all have platforms, so mm. I, I was aware of you from Twitter, and um, <laughs> so I, I have various fam- familiarity with with different <laughs> yeah. writers. So I, you know, I did things like searched out the writers that I knew I'd, I'd enjoyed before. But I learned really quickly. Um, so Tim, I wasn't as familiar with you, sure. But I learned really quickly with each of the stories to expect the tears to come um <laughs> there are moments i mean i think the, the, it's devastating in that it's only the second or um third paragraph where you say after my partner right. had died sure. and i i wasn't expecting that and it yeah. was just so so beautifully i don't know it just it devastated me that was that was all i had to say there but what did you gain from reading each other's you 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 have have read at least some if not all of them maybe you've obviously been there for all of them <laughs> Um, I, I mean, the thing about the devastation, I think, is really interesting. Mm. And putting the order together, I was I found that quite hard because they really do jump around um, between quite devastating and quite hilarious. Mm. And I um, I read something recently that said the art of queer storytelling. It was talking about Nanette, um, Hannah Gadsby's show, and it was talking about how the art of queer storytelling is being able to switch very quickly from the seriously tragic to the comic and that it's a coping mechanism for those from marginalised communities as well to do dark humour. Um, and that sort of relieved some of my stress. Uh, for me, the order in my head takes a person through a life. Mm. So a lot of them start with a lot of the earlier stories are around childhood or coming out. Not perfectly like that because I didn't want it to be too obvious. And by the end, you've got a lot more stories that I think are yeah, a heavier reflection on death or um, um, introspection. So, but that was loosely done as a shape. So I'm sorry, I've completely blown You've your it. curation. No, but that's good because I was so worried about whether it was perfect. And somebody said to me, people jump around with short stories 
calm down just <laughs> just do it in in an order that feels right to you i've read all of them but it's hard for me because i've read them first as drafts i saw them performed i edited them for the podcast or i had someone edit them for the podcast and then edited them for this and then at a certain point read the proofs and it's hard for me sometimes now to remember them as stories but mm. some of the beautiful moments i had while editing the book was when a story like tim's had me cry again and I was like well I've read this so many times and I'm sitting at my desk technically doing work but I can still laugh or cry or respond to these stories like a reader and that was really delightful yeah. um, in terms of a day at work um, I should I should have clarified too I mean I used Tim I, I mentioned yours as an example but right. I found myself at, at these different moments like there were tears there were tears were joyful and, yeah. and also yeah. sad there is there's there's so much, and, and I mean, it, hilarity. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's one particularly. There's one story that I just laughed. The, the South Australia, the pinball. Um, oh, yeah. Jen Clowes. Oh, 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 that was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as a as a reader, one of the thing I, uh, um, I sort of noticed. But I suppose I haven't read many anthologies of different writers. Was the thing about how you know style kept changing, which understandably, mm. you know, mm. it does. So I I enjoyed it. I, you know, you're you're talking about it as a reader. You know, read a couple or read one, have a think about it. Even Google the writer. Yeah. You know, and get, see, see what they look like. I wanted to find out who the, who exactly they were. And, uh, yeah. I recently um, was writing my second piece for Queer Stories, and I was having like as I do before everything I write. I was having just a massive brain block, and I was like, I can't write. I have no idea what I'm doing. This is a ridiculous career. And so I decided to like read the entire book and listen to the entire podcast as a way to just like prep myself to get in the mood. I just spent like several days catatonic, just like so full of emotion. I couldn't do anything because I'm just like, I love my community so much. <laughs> everyone is so wonderful. Like I just could like my like partners and friends were just like, are you okay? I'm just like, I just love everyone. <laughs> like it's, oh. there's so much emotion in them. <laughs> There is so much emotion in them, and I think that the more of them that get done, the easier it is for writers who come to speak at Queer Stories to get a sense of the style, that it's a space for the personal and the intimate and for laughing at yourself and laughing at the community as well. That it's a space where we can make fun of our community um, is also great because we can't always do that in a public-facing way. And I think that what's nice about this collection for me is that it happened before some of that rhythm had really settled in. Like if you think about the life of a book, these are all from kind of the first year of Queer Stories when we were still working out what the event was sort of collectively. And I think that that diversity of style is really reflected in the book. And I mean, if there's a second volume, which I would love there to be, I think that would be different again. Can I ask all of you then, and I don't know why this is only just occurring to <laughs> me, when I when I received the book, and when I, sorry, when I first yeah. heard the book, when I received it, I... I was aware of the evening, but yeah. I, I didn't know whether it was all personal stories. I thought perhaps there could be some elements of fiction or or something. But, I mean, I, I suppose it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you could do that. But what is what, what, the question I have is, what, what is a queer story then? Uh, it's 10 minutes <laughs> of an LGBTQI plus person telling a personal story, I say no fiction, telling a personal story in whatever style they wish. I say to people, it's a lot of what I do is just a few boundaries of what it's not because I don't want to be too prescriptive. I say I don't want spoken opinion pieces. I really don't want a political speech. Politics is integral to our lives, but I really don't want a style that would get published as an opinion piece in a magazine. I think we've read a lot of those and it's not what the night is for. 
Um, and yeah, and I don't want fiction. And other than that, it's it's the identity of the person that makes the story and it's hard I, I have to because I'm a bit of a bossy boots and a writer myself I have to curb myself from being too heavy-handed with either boundaries or editing mm. I edit if there's content that's offensive or I provide advice if I think the writer's a bit in the weeds with their piece or if they've written something too long but I'm pretty open with what people are allowed to do. People sometimes use projection, like they have a slideshow of photos from their life. I've never told people to do that, but some people just want to. People sometimes incorporate music. I had We did one for, with 78ers, who are all people who marched in the first Mardi Gras protest, and heaps of them went to really high tech, so smashing through that stereotype of old people and tech, because oh. they were like, one of them had this incredibly complex PowerPoint with like pop songs that took ages to edit out of the podcast because we didn't have the rights to the pop songs. So people sometimes get really creative with their 10 minutes or sing, but the main, normally it's a personal narrative story um, delivered in the style of lots of the ones in the book. So once Maeve's given you that rundown <laughs> and told you more that uh, it's sort of what it's, what not, it's not, what is what is it then to you? I mean, I, I think challenging. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 so open-ended. Yeah, 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 and you know, you, you get full of fear of expectations, like you know, because it was it's also, uh, you know, I came late to queer stories. It was it was new to me. Yeah. One of the things I really had to deal with was this expectation of um, humour that um, like we need it, and it's mm. but but sort of like oh gee, you know, sort of like I, I know they sort of you know they're expecting. I feel like they're expecting humour, but but they're not. And I suppose that was more because of Giant Dwarf and, mm. you know, and the history of the place as you know as, as comedy. So you know, as a performer, you know, you, you start to get your your natural fears about you know, oh, you know, what am I going to write? You know, <laughs> what do a they lot want? of people have that humour concern. They say, do they need to be funny? Do they need to be funny? And I say, no, just write what you want. No. And often people write sad stuff, and the humour comes in them going off there. script mm. spontaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, but my job, I think, is often creating an order for the night that protects the storytellers so not putting someone incredibly funny before someone devastatingly sad um, if that person is less especially if that person's less experienced so I try in the shape of the night um, to create a rhythm that means that the audience will go with the stories so even the last Friday that we were speaking of where I knew that sort of two or three of the stories were quite personal and could be end up feeling sad on the night and even that night I switched to on arrival because I realised that the energies they were bringing um, to the room were going to work better in a different order um, and sometimes it's about starting with something sad so people are ready for the sad that comes later sometimes it's about starting really light so that people are buoyed and then can stay up so I, the the order for me is really important of each individual event um, in terms of yeah protecting people and their individual writing styles. And it's a comment that comes up a lot from a lot of people I talk to, that the events are incredibly well-programmed. Like that well, thank yeah, you. comes through yeah. so well in how the audience are receiving that. I want to enter a sort of a realm of what storytelling does, what's, mm. what sort of power storytelling has, because it's something that we do um, as from a very young age. Mm. Um, in fact, yeah... Uh, Something I'll share about me, I'm my, my day job, I'm a speech pathologist. Oh, cool. And so I work with kids, some of my littlies, I think the littlest I've had was about 15 months, oh. and looking at how they develop um, language and then into narrative and the way narrative realises self. And I'm really curious 
about that juxtaposition between telling these personal stories and then the idea of archetypes and narratives that you are meant to fit into. And mm. Maeve, um, you, I mean, you mentioned in uh, My Mother's Told Me Stories this need to explain, to justify your family, also this, uh, this pressure to be like, exemplary queers. Mm. And I think you felt it particularly for your family because before they, uh, before they split up, your mothers had been together, was it 28 years? 28 and, years, mm. and they, they were kind of trailblazers. I'm 34, my brother's 37 or 38, mm. and my sister's three years younger. And when they came to Sydney in 88, there wasn't a sort of coherent lesbian mothers with children group or rainbow babies, and they started the first one here. So most of our family friends who had kids and were queer families, the kids were younger than us, which wasn't the case in London. In London, there was a big cohort um, our age. So they were trailblazers and there was that pressure. I mean, I think the storytelling thing is really interesting. I think for me it's been a double-edged sword in that I can't imagine my life without having been this person who spoke about themselves mm. a great deal and it is now part of my career and I'm confident on stage in part as a result. So I don't regret that pressure, but I also, as discussed with my therapist, have quite a lot of anxiety and perfectionism around performing the self and around that. I mean, I think what you say about toddlers is really interesting though um, because I read that, that, that actually when toddlers are repeating these stories, they're actually creating the neural pathways of understanding in their brain. It's not that they're just repetitive and don't have more language. When they tell you the same thing over and over again, they're teaching themselves cause and effect mm. and they're teaching themselves how the world works. And that fascinated me and made me much more patient with my like younger kids, like friends' kids, when they want to repeat things. Because I was like, this is them right. understanding the world. We tell stories to understand the world. Mm. And I push the speech pathologist in me down. because this No, will, no, I love speech pathologists. We will, go in, we will go, yeah, but we will go on such a weird tangent. <laughs> but I, look, I'm into it. A speech pathologist changed my life. I had nodules and ah. a speech pathologist retaught me how to sing and I now have a career as a singer. I love speech pathologists. Wow. You said that and I was like, yay, a hero. <laughs> what, I was, what I was wondering about your story, though, is in one sense you talk about how there was a sense that you had sort of the perfect story mm. in your family and then it even even you know close friends were were struggling with this idea mm. that your parents were splitting up and mm. the perfect story was over that yeah. um that that you were that I got a sense that you felt like there was a letting down and oh there was a total letting down what did storytelling and and telling that story do to you to sort of honor your story and to realize yourself Look, it's been interesting. It's been interesting working through the writing of my story where I talk about my parents' divorce, or we'll quote-unquote divorce. Um, it was interesting processing it with my parents and saying to them, I'm going to start writing about our family in different ways because they're used to me writing really positive things about our family, especially, I mean, man, during that plebiscite, everyone wanted me to write a happy Gaby story and I made a reasonable income doing it a few times and I, and I mean it. I was a happy child. Like, I'm glad my parents stayed together, even though it was hard for them sometimes, um, because I did have a pretty happy and supported childhood by them. But in them splitting up and in them splitting them up, up with a lot of fighting and lies and, and issues between them, um, putting that to paper and, I suppose, outing them for some of their flaws or shortcomings was hard for them, to, for me to do that. But I'm only able to do it because that, family tradition of storytelling and processing has gone on for the 10 years after they split up. So mm. that that trait that they gave me of talking and communicating, we have applied to our family and their, their belief in our family and possibly 
their strength fighting against discrimination has made them reshape our family. So by the time I've put the story down, by the time I've said, I think I say they're total dickheads, um, a line that they did not like, um, but I left in because it was true for me. Um, by the time I put that down, they were ready for me too, I think. And, and I've told them I'm already, I want to write a, a play about a same-sex couple getting divorced and I've started working on that so they're going to get used to it if your family's weird and difficult you should at least get an arts career out of it surely <laughs> but I think one of the things we've touched on a lot is the idea that it's really it's not just therapeutic I'm, like I have also talked to my therapist about my stories um, as I'm sure a bunch of people have <laughs> mm. but there's something really therapeutic about talking about our flaws and our foibles and the thing and the ways that we like just yeah completely fuck up as mm. queers and that isn't allowed to be part of the public narrative like the op-eds are like everything is perfect and beautiful and here's why and to be able to get onto a stage and be like mm, sometimes it's not and have people be like yeah like absolutely it's not is and a really we hurt each other it's not yeah. just um discrimination from outside we need to be able to talk about what a community of people who've gone through discrimination and in many cases trauma, what that means when we all band together. Sometimes we hurt each other. I mean, mm. yeah, racism in the LGBTQI plus community mm. is a real problem and especially because there's less of us. So we're all thrown in together. So we're experiencing those lateral discriminations mm. in really fraught ways. And and we have to be able to talk about that now. We can't just keep saying, everything's fine, we're great, we're just like you, we're normal, mm. we're the same, love us. Because... We've got to process some stuff first. And I think stories are a gentle way of doing that. Stories are a welcoming way of doing that. Um, and everyone kind of gets in on it. Like whenever in the room someone's like, oh, here's like, you know, something terrible that has happened to me or happened by another queer, everyone's just like, hmm, yes, yeah. that experience. And <laughs> oh, so there's okay. kind of a sharing about it. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking at me. Oh. <laughs> or... Um, I, I was maybe maybe we can talk about how we got to this point where we we have this need to for people to be exemplary because um, yeah. it was it was only a month ago although everything in Oz politics feels like a, a lifetime it was only a month ago that Scott Morrison tweeted his ridiculous gender whispering comments <laughs> mm-hmm. so I was in I was in a coffee shop uh, just the other day it was yesterday actually um, up the back they had this play area um, and it was resplendent with like it had a miniature espresso machine and assorted little wooden petty fours Um, (laughs) so the kids were happily playing barista not a single parent was in an uproar about the cafe being hospitality whisperers Um, (laughs) what does stories I mean and kids play kids play and they. They go through, you know, they go through copying play and they go through scripting of things that they've seen and trying on different ideas of what it means to do a thing. What do stories, stories in queer stories or being able to tell queer stories, like, you know, let's separate queer stories in the book and on the stage to queer stories being told everywhere. What do stories and having them visible, lived queer experiences and realities mean to you? And what do you think they mean to kids out there? who are living in a society that has a prime minister that still engages content warning in this kind of fucking hateful commentary. Like, <laughs> what does it mean or what, or what would it have meant to you? 
I'm just thinking. Yeah, I'm, look, which way in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> look, the only, the only thing I can sort of pick up is is the idea is when when you're giving out your story, you're hoping or, or wishing that it resonates with someone. Like it won't resonate necessarily as equally with everybody, but for somebody, it sort of resonates, and then and then that can oppose, you know, the other messages that you know they're hearing. It's about almost you know changing your thinking. Like you know, once you hear the story, you could you know if you re- it resonates with you, you can change you know the way you feel about yourself or you, or you I think, think for me yourself. the thing with children and and those sort of comments from good old scomo um someone said that sounds affectionate scomo and i think it sounds like scum or yeah. scomophobe so i'm keeping it um it sounds like an eczema sort of it thing it does yeah. doesn't it right <laughs> um the thing about children and i'm at that age where most of my close friends or a lot of my close friends and relatives are having kids so i'm around children a lot and you realise what sponges they are and that if you give them positive content or stories around gender, they will pick it up. They are not naturally split into pink and blue. They're, they're these beautiful little creatures who blur those lines and, and all the teaching we do to them that locks them into this kind of cishet um, set to camps, you know, boys and girls can't be friends, that is... It's damage. It's that's what's damaging. I really think it is. And and then whether they're or not they're queer or straight, at a certain point they're going to have to undo it. A straight like I like straight couples now are trying to work out how to dismantle everything we were taught growing up about men and women being each other's enemies and needing to line up in separate lines because then they've got to find ways to love each other. In some ways, I think lesbianism looks much easier than being a heterosexual woman these days because the whole world is debating you know the way that men and women can love and desire each other it it's exhausting and it's because we do this to kids it's because we lock them in to these camps and set them up as this battle and i think it's harmful i spent the weekend with my 3 year old niece who is not being raised without gender but it, her parents are putting a huge amount of effort to not gender people all the time so they talk about adults and kids not boys and girls and men and women, they say, oh, look, that adult over there is doing that. And the delight in seeing her discover gender and try to work it out, but without any rules, you know, she said about her little brother, he's a boy and I'm a kid. (laughs) And her mum was like, well, he's going to be a kid too. Oh, no, he's a boy. I'm a kid. And so she's still working out. She's like, he's a boy because he's got a penis. And, And her mother just said, well, he might be or he might choose to be a girl one day and some, you know, a lot of boys have penises and, and she was like, hmm, I'm a boy. And she said, and I was like, if you want, yeah, you wanted to be a boy yesterday, so if you want to be a boy today, you can. She said, no, I'll be a girl. And that's what kids do and if you don't challenge it and you just let them play with it and you let them play with all the toys and do all the things, they'll work it out. They don't actually need to be taught these rigid roles and actually teaching them, I think, is harmful because imaginative play, like you staying is how and stories is how kids learn and if you just always go mm-hmm, cool instead of don't touch that you're a boy and that's a girl's toy I mean I'm going on about it but it just it bothers me and when you see it done well when you see kids given all the options to be free and to be themselves they generally pick somewhere in the middle for years and why not let them have that let them have that freedom from those rules that kind of lock us in um, at the uh, 
Queer Stories book launch at the Opera House, it was really interesting that a lot of people came up with two books to get signed. And one was, like, for them, and the other one was for, like, like a child, like a niece or a nephew or a nibbling or, like, some, like, a friend's kid or someone in their life who they either knew was queer or maybe assumed was queer or just wanted to give the book and they just wanted you know can you write something inspiring for them can you do something in this book for like you know this 10 year old child this 15 year old child and that was a really beautiful thing Mm. that so many people including like a lot of like a bunch of straight parents it seemed was just like this is clearly important that they're reading this that they're engaging with this um and i want to provide them this i want to actually give them the stories that they can go out into the world with And, I mean, I think that's one of the really beautiful things about the idea of queer stories is, like, you know, the book is called Queer Stories, the event's called Queer Stories, but it's it's coming from a concept that is that we all do it anyway, like queer stories are a thing that everybody has and owns in the community and that kids are able to do that. Like, what kids are doing now are their own queer stories. Mm. And, like, we don't have a, you know, a trademark on what that means for us as performers and adults and writers. Mm. Like, it's a thing that everybody does all the time and Mm. it's how we build community. Yeah. And I think as well, I mean, I I noticed it as well. I just did events in Lismore and Albury and at both events, straight parents bought some LGBTQI teens and sort of checked in advance that it was okay to bring like 15 to 18 year olds. And they did and they came up afterwards and it was beautiful and that doesn't happen so much in Sydney because there's more options for everyone in terms of events but these parents living in rural towns and we've got so many stereotypes about rural towns and homophobia but they were really stepping up and really trying this gruff dad who I thought was a bear Um, (laughs) but it turns out he was a straight dad who'd brought his trans boy teen who was about 16 17 and he was working really hard to get the gender right you know and he could be like oh she, oh he he you know he's it just it's good for him to see as a his community and i wanted he wanted to come and talk to you and like that wouldn't have happened 10 15 years ago like things are changing and i think that prime minister and government who say those kind of things are actually behind like they're further behind the parents who are trying harder and you know i mean yeah, my sister-in-law who's not doing gender too much with her kid, she's in a straight relationship. Like, these are people really wanting their kids to have all the options and it's exciting. Like, it's not what I had. I mean, I had it in my house growing up, but once I left the walls of my house, there was a lot of gender crap. It's wonderful to read. It also It's also really challenging and really difficult because the the, the one thing that you don't get growing up and you get a lot when you're when you're white and you're male mm. you're cisgendered male and you're heterosexual There's heaps of you on telly you get, mm. yeah yeah <laughs> the one thing you don't get is told that you're still performing as well you're still yeah. performing a role and so to read something like queer stories you you start to see all the different potentialities mm. and so that's hard because you have to challenge yourself and you, <laughs> like that's an active thing that you have to do and so that's that's wonderful so i'm going to say thank you to all of you oh thanks <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is final draft you are on 2ICR 107.3 and uh i've been having a wonderful conversation i'm going to reintroduce uh shocking i haven't reintroduced you during our long conversation <laughs> but i am speaking with Liz Duck Chong Tim Bishop and Maeve Marsden we are discussing queer stories which is an absolutely fantastic collection uh, you have to get out and read it. I'm telling you. Buy it. Yeah. Mm. Or you come. You can come and borrow mine, but there'll be a line. No, buy it. You got to go and buy your own. Thank <laughs> we'll you. Go to a library. Thank each of you for coming in. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. So Thank much. you.
That's it for part two of our Great Conversations panel discussing queer stories. It's a new collection exploring lives well lived from some of Australia's finest LGBTQIA plus writers. Today's panel featured Liz Duck-Chong, Tim Bishop and Maeve Marsden. And Queer Stories is out now through Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you're listening to the podcast. Not only will you receive a new episode delivered straight to your phone every week, or, or as the case may be this week, two new episodes, it also is a great way to help others discover Australian literature through the podcast. 2SCR is a community radio station and we're supporter funded. If you like our podcasts and you want to be part of that community, you can support us on 2SCR.com forward slash support. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, why not follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook? We are Final Draft or at Final Draft 2SCR. I'm Andrew Popel and I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. We'll see you then.